Amen. Would you just give God praise this morning as we yeah. just considering the idea of the stories that we get to tell because of God's faithfulness and, and what he's brought us through. And God has definitely this, even just this week, reminded me of the goodness of who he is and how it's, it's the, the realization of how good he is just keeps getting better. That idea of him continually re- revealing and reminding us of his character and goodness just continually gets better and better in our lives. Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Eric Thien. I'm the lead pastor here at Common Ground Northeast. It's so good to have you all out. How you doing? Yeah, got some, some folks on site. I know there's a good plenty of people online right now, so I just want to do a quick shout out to you all. We're glad that you're joining us, whether you're here in person or online. It's exciting to be here um, with you all um, and, and exciting to be here on MLK weekend. Who's excited about that, man? I, I know like, it's like this mixed feeling, right? Like we're talking about this legacy, this idea of who he was, but also the sacrifice that Dr. King said. So I just want to start this off today by bringing our attention to the commemoration, the observation of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. This week and his life has been an example to us. His legacy and ministry have been something that have had and still has an impact on us today. And so I want to urge you at some point for this not just to be a weekend with an extra day off, but a day in which you focus in, commemorate, observe this idea of who he was. And so over the next um, few, uh, couple days, even maybe today, um, I know that there's all kinds of celebrations and commemorations taking place. If you feel welcome enough to go to one of those physically, feel free to do it. But I know they're also online if you're trying to just be more cautious with COVID. Do something this week that stops and observes and pays close attention to the work that Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. did um, in his time. And this is a secondary kind of maybe urgence for those of you who are parents. Um, bring your kids. Have conversations. I think one of the most poignant moments when we did the gospel and race workshops here with Josh was that he would ask us what our parents did to inform us and teach us about race and racism. And so then he would then, you know, so you have your own critique of what you felt like mom and dad might have done or could have done better, whatever that was. But then he stopped and he said, so what are you doing to teach your children about it right now? And it was like reality hit like, oh, oh yeah. What am I intentionally doing to do that? Well, today and this weekend, uh, tomorrow and this weekend, is an intentional moment for you to stop and bring the kids around and say that we want to advance the work of what he did and to pass it on generationally, all right? There's still work to be done. Last few years, we have always preached about the life of MLK and the likeness of his ministry. This year is no different. But what I notice is that this year, distinctly as opposed to some other years, is that it already wraps up very well the focus of this with our becoming new as one in our series that we're already doing. And so what I want to do is notice, recognize that MLK's words were like new wine in an environment that was made of an old wine skin, and it was unwilling and unfit to receive it in that time. He was a new wine prophet. And so as we're talking about the newness of where we're heading as a church, this prophet uh, has words that are so powerful, so specific to who he is, that I want us to highlight that. In fact, I'm even borrowing words from his sermon that he preached called New Wine in New Bottles. And so if you're familiar with that sermon, you'll hear little bits and pieces of it coming out. Now, there's a few ways that I want today to apply to your life and how today's teaching can interact with you and who you are, but I want to surface those things throughout the thing. But what I want to do is in light of what we're trying to do here at Common Ground Northeast, in light of the season that we're walking through right now, and in light of the original place where Dr. King took these scriptures today, I want to bring us back to that by the end. All right? Is everyone good with that? 
Oh, 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 we're too calm today. <laughs> Is everyone good with that? All right. So we'll come back to this. Just hold on to that. Um, well, we're talking about new wine today. It's been my experience, um, just in general, my walk with God, that it's incredibly hard. Uh, I do this, but it's incredibly hard not to, is I always t- tend to go to God with some sort of an agenda, something in mind that I want to get across, something uh, along the lines of me reading the scriptures, going through them, and then falling down on a posture wherein the things I read will, will, will somehow make their way of affirming the things I already believe, or, or whatever it is that I want those scriptures to say, Right? As a consistent struggle in my life, there's this spiritual way in which I will position myself at the center of whatever the scriptures are saying to me, to place myself as the good guy who's on the better side of Jesus' teachings, right? Is it just me who does that? I put myself in that middle spot, and so I'll read and receive these teachings in the context that best benefits me or Ben's Jesus' teachings to agree with my already constructed beliefs about life, morality, relationships, priorities, behaviors, values, whatever that might be. And so instead of adjusting myself to the life that God has in store for me, instead of adjusting myself to the life that God has said, I've prepared something for you, I've told you the way in which it is that humans are supposed to walk in thriving, I want you to take your assumptions about your life and your dreams for your future and find a way to adjust yourself to the scriptures instead of accommodating your life with my words. And I think we all do this. We can subtly find ourselves trying to hold on to as much of the life that we've built for ourselves and just kind of round off the corners with a little bit of Jesus in that, right? And so what I want us to call ourselves to is to allow God to saturate the Spirit of God to come into our lives, to form us, to change us from the inside out. And, and, and we want, instead of trying to make Jesus work for us, to become servants of Jesus It's not just about correction. I want to make sure that that's clear. That's not just a correction of our wayward tendencies, though that is true about us. It's about trusting that God has something better in store for our lives than we had in store for ourselves. All right? So it's a trust thing. It's not just that. Pastor Mike Kelsey says this. He says, you can't experience what Jesus wants you to experience by just adding him to the life that you've already decided to live. I'm going to read that one more time, Pastor Mike Kelsey. You can't experience what Jesus wants you to experience by just adding him to the life that you already have decided to live. And so I want to open, I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 9. If you have your Bible with you, if you have a phone or whatever you want to open it with, Matthew chapter 9, we're going to start in verse 14. And what we're going to see in here is that we're going to read about somebody who comes to Jesus with an agenda, with an attempt to make Jesus adjust and to accommodate his own understanding, right? So verse 14, let's read this together. It says this, Then John's disciples, now we're talking about John the Baptist, that's who it's referencing. Then John's disciples came and asked him, how is it that we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus answered, how can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? Well, wait, hold up. Now I can tell by your response or lack of response that you didn't quite catch what's going on there because that's actually kind of funny. What Jesus did is actually kind of a humorous thing to do. Have you ever caught, maybe it's just me, have you ever caught that Jesus is really good for a clapback every once in a while, especially when someone comes to him with a pointed question? It's a crazy thing. Some of you are like Googling that right now. What is he talking about? 
Let me read this again. I'm going to put a little bit more attitude on it. I want you to catch what's happening. This is a pointed question, and listen to the dynamics. Then John's disciples came and asked him, how is it that we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples, they don't fast? Jesus, and you just kind of imagine, like, oh, okay, all right. He uses a question, answer question. So, okay, how can the guests of a bridegroom mourn while he is with them. He drops the mic and stands back. Now, there's some dynamics going on that we don't fully get here, so let me explain a little bit of what's going on. This is, this is what's happening. A disciple of John the Baptist, remember that. John the Baptist, a prominent pastor or spe- uh, prophet of that moment who has publicly submitted himself to Jesus Christ. He said, I am not even worthy to untie the sandals of this rabbi. And that guy's student comes to Jesus with an agenda and the audacity to challenge Jesus' religious commitment because he isn't practicing an optional religious duty that they themselves and the Pharisees have committed to doing. And so you see, Jesus isn't against fasting. We know that. But fasting was only prescribed in the Old Testament for the Day of Atonement. That's once a year. But as a a part of like religious and pious um, uh, sects of Judaism, they've decided to offer more moments. And so catch this, like fasting is directly related to repentance, directly related to mourning. And so they're religiously, right, in, in the truest sense of that word, doing this on a regular occasion, not just once a year, not just once a month, not just once a week, two times a week along with the Pharisees, but in doing so, they're also putting themselves on a pedestal. Like, look how pious we are. Look how religious we are. And Jesus takes this opportunity just to level him out a bit. Jesus comes back at him with a little lesson. Son, listen, if you knew who I was, you would understand that this is not an occasion for fasting. This is not an occasion for mourning. This is an occasion for celebration And he uses a wedding analogy to explain that to him. Now, weddings are celebratory moments, right? Now, I'm going to admit this to you. I want to confess this to you. I don't even think I knew how to celebrate. I was doing weddings all wrong before I went to New Orleans, all right? Like 100% wrong. I don't even think I knew how to celebrate, to be honest, before I was in that context. And so I'm, I'm responsible for doing weddings. I did a wedding for someone in our congregation just yesterday. Lots of hugs, lots of laughter, food, people hanging out. There's all, if there's tears, it's tears of joy. It's a celebratory moment. All right, and that's the, the atmosphere that we're walking into. And so what happened is when I would go to weddings before I went to New Orleans is I would be the person who would just kind of do this. Everyone's dancing, everyone's having fun, but like I'm an introvert. If you know me, you know that I'm an introvert. And so I'm going to find that one person, have a good conversation with them, and we're going to be cool. Everyone's dancing out here, and I'm, you know, this is me. Like, oh, it looks like fun, cool. Looks jumping around. Like, okay, let's, let's be honest, look at me. I got bright red hair, I'm six foot seven, giant shoes. By definition, I'm a clown, right? Like, I'm a clown if you read my description in a piece of paper. I'm an awkward guy out there, and it looks like this, and then this giant red-haired guy out there in the dance floor. 
But remember, cultures have different parts to them that they hold dear and that are special to them. And so there are dances that are culturally specific to New Orleans that everyone knows, right? And so if you don't know this, New Orleans is known very specifically for bounce music and lots of dances. It's fun. It's a celebration, right? And so a lot of these dances are choreographed, but you don't, you don't teach it. You just grow up knowing it. It's part of the water you're drinking. So, so me coming from the outside in, I didn't know this. People just jump out on the dance floor, start doing these like dances and all of these different things and I'm like awkwardly trying to learn them. Now, if you grew up in Texas, you might be thinking I'm referring to the electric slide. Totally different situation. That's cowboys, that's line dancing, all right? That's a different situation. But you get the idea, right? You didn't have to be taught that. It's just part of the culture. And so I'm sitting here in my corner hanging out like, oh, this is great, cool, sounds like fun. No, I'm good. I'm just like not the dancing type. That's not, you know, it's just not me. It's not my personality. But then they start the second line. A second line is a tradition, and everyone in the room gets up for it. You get in a line, the, the, the bride and the groom have, have parasols, and they're dancing around. It's like a lot of two-stepping. It's just, I mean, it's just fun. It's just a giant line of people dancing. It's a parade. It's meant to be the second line of the parade. That's where the term comes from. And if I'm over here doing this while everyone's out there doing that, not only am I the weirdo in the room, this is rude. Like, this is rude for me to deny the celebration that is consistent with this moment. So once I got out of my comfort zone, went out there, started having fun, like, getting my big old lanky hands up in the air, right? Like, I don't care, all of that. (laughs) Getting out of my comfort zone just to, like, kind of do it. And eventually I'm like, man, I actually, this is fun. I actually like dancing at weddings. Like, it's fun. It's not any less awkward, mind you. It is very awkward still to this day. But there was a part of me that realized, like, I was denying celebration from myself because I was unwilling to adjust to the environment that was sitting in front of me. I needed to adjust. Now hear this. You're going to see how this connects to Jesus here. This is Jesus' point. What you're asking me to do is out of place. It's actually very ridiculous in the context of the season because you don't go up to the groom before the wedding hours or even the week before and say, hey man, did you, you know, did, you, did you fast? Did you mourn? Did you go into a time of sorrow, put ash cloth on you, lay down on the ground? Like, no. Are you serious? I'm getting, I'm getting married in two, two days. That's, that's the wrong season. So, so, so Jesus, shouldn't your people be fasting? And Jesus is like, no. Like you're reading this situation completely wrong because there is a groom on the scene and this is my wedding party and we have come to celebrate that the kingdom of God is about to take place, all right? So it is, it is ridiculous what this guy is asking and Jesus definitely hits back on him when he responds with the response that he gives. He says, how can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he's with them? And then he gives him what he needs, right? Jesus gets that next step. There is a time coming when the bridegroom will be taken from them. Then they will fast, right? There is a season appropriate to the question, disciple of John, that you are asking. It's on its way. It's going to be here. But while I am with them, no. My disciples are going to rejoice. In verse 16, Jesus gives them two analogies that we're going to focus in on to suggest that they need to adjust to his reality instead of vice versa. 
Verse 16 says, No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch will pull away from the garment, making the tear worse. Neither do people pour new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the skins will burst, the wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. Now, now, keep in mind, this is common knowledge for them, uh, and I, I'm assuming, like, for the most part, I think we get what's going on here, but I'm going to give just a quick little breakdown, a little explanation so you can see it um, in, in what this is mean, because I think before we get to the application part of it, we have to understand the meaning of these metaphors. And so the metaphor of the cloth is pretty straightforward in that a new untreated or unwashed cloth shrinks. It still happens today. If you've got a piece of cotton and you throw it into the washer and dryer, dry it up on that hot setting, it's going to be probably half the size of what it was before you threw it in there. And so when this happens, when you take an old garment, put the new one on, it shrinks in the washing. It shrinks because it's untreated. And what ends up happening is both the garment tears because the threads pull it out of it and the cloth is lost. Both things get ruined in the minute. In the middle of it. And so the meaning is this. Jesus has not come to patch up the traditional acts of righteousness within religious sects of Judaism like the young student is suggesting. Instead, he offers something new. He offers real growth. He offers righteousness through discipleship in the kingdom of heaven. And that's so new to him. The metaphor of the wine. Give us the Im- it gives us this image of wineskins, which are made of animal hide, all right? Then it's treated with kind of this waxy substance, and you see the picture up there. This is actually modern day. It still happens today. This is a pig skin that's been used um, to, uh, to ferment wine. And so what happens is you, you put this wax, and the skin stretches a little bit. And so what you do is as the fermentation, as all the gases are released and this grape juice is turning into wine, it expands just like a balloon to the height of its extent. It's expanded as much as it possibly can. So if you take another, if you drain that out, put more new wine in it, it's going to stretch it, expand it beyond its own capacity. And what happens is that the gases will cause that skin to tear, to rip, or even explode. In, in, and, and so what they're going to do is lose both the wine skin, the storage unit, and also the wine will just go out on the floor and they don't get either one of those things, right? Meaning this, that Jesus has not come to fill the old Jewish system or traditions with a new life. That had a season. Now don't forget that. That had a season, but they were inadequate to support the new life of the new kingdom. Later on, Paul, I can't remember if, if, uh, who says it, which book it comes from, but he calls it a guardian. He said that the, the old system was a guardian, but it wasn't actually the fullness of you just being a mature adult who doesn't need the guardian anymore. And so instead he forms, the, he, instead he says new forms are needed for this kingdom and a new practice must be created to accommodate the new life of discipleship in Jesus. Now it's important, I always do this every once in a while just to kind of point it out, the new does not supersede or abolish the Old Testament. This does not in any way mean that the Old Testament is completely useless to us because Jesus came to fulfill the law. And I love the way the Jewish New Testament commentary puts it, noting the careful word choice, neos, the Greek word used here, means new new in respect to time, implying immaturity or lack of development, not uselessness, but it just hadn't gotten to its fullness yet. So Jesus and the kingdom that he is now ushering in, that he is now preaching, that he is teaching to these Pharisees and the disciples of John the Baptist, is that what I am giving you is the perfection, the full maturity of the thing that you have been operating according to. Now, this is what I think 
would operate today. If Jesus were alive today, he's going to say that the kingdom of heaven looks more like this. A cell phone. Now, what I want you to see is this. Has anyone seen one of these before? By a raise of hands, has anyone seen one of these before? So check this out. This is one of the first cell phones ever created. It is the Mobira Talkman NMT450 portable phone circa 1984. What? I saw one of these in real life one time. I was at a mall in Oregon with my cousin. We were hanging out there for a while, and then it came time to go home. And what I realized, he didn't tell us this because he wanted that moment, right, where he could pull it out. It was in his backpack because that thing's giant. And he sits, there's the fountain right at the center. He comes and he sits down on the bench. He puts his backpack on the ground, grabs the handle, pulls it out and puts it on the bench next to him, starts flicking switches, I don't know, dialing in coordinates. I don't know what you had to do with that thing. He puts the receiver to his ear and he's like, hey dad, it's time to get picked up. And then what we didn't realize, he was looking up and he knew it the whole time. There's a crowd gathering because this is so new. People are like, whispering, is that a cell phone? What is that? What is that thing that he has, right? And so he's sitting there, and he's looking and just soaking it in. I can hear in the receiver, my uncle, he said, that costs like $8 a minute. Hang up the phone, right? So he's like quickly putting this thing away, puts it back. But he had that, that nice little moment. This is, this is what I want you to see. So the talkman could only do one thing, make phone calls, Less than five, probably less than three, probably less than one percent of what this phone can now do. And if I try to take everything that an iPhone can do, this isn't even the newest version, just like two years ago, right? 5G internet, I don't know what we're at, we're like 28 G's internet, global maps, GPS navigation, video game after video game can be downloaded, Spotify with endless music, you can do Netflix, you can do Hulu, you can do Disney+. Plus. All of these things, straight to your phone, there is an app for literally every single thing that we can think of. If you tried to download this into that, it would beg for mercy. Like it would cry out for help because it would begin to sizzle, smoke would come out of the vents, and eventually this thing would just burst into flames. It wasn't fit for the fullness of what the future had in hold. And so Jesus, by saying these things to the young student, by using these analogies, he's pushing back on his agenda and saying, you're operating off of that old phone season, disciple of John. You are operating off of that old framework, Pharisee, and he's teaching them, not just correcting them, but teaching them to make room for something new. And Jesus is saying, put that old phone away. Someone's got to say that one with me. Put that old phone away. You'll get there. <laughs> Not only have you read this season wrong, son, this thing is so new, so mature, so powerful, so upgraded, so advanced that the old system is unfit to contain it. It's not compatible with the new thing that God is doing in the kingdom of heaven that I am downloading into my disciples is that. So don't try to get them to fit into your tiny little old phone system. Put your flip phone razors away, right? There's a smartphone coming. Who knows what we're going to see in the next few years? He's looking at him and he's saying, put that old phone away, but not just that, because listen, he goes that next level. I'm not mad at you. 
You just don't know what you don't know. I will upgrade you if you will make room and adjust. Pharisee, if you are willing to make room and adjust. Disciple of John, if you are willing to make room and adjust yourself, I will give you the upgrade for this new system that I'm calling the kingdom of God. And so I want you to hear this. No matter where you sit on that, from the legalist to the least of these, from the tax collector to the teacher of the old ways, if you are willing to adjust, God says the kingdom of, of heaven can handle that. It can, it can bring you into it. It will accommodate you into it if you are willing to adjust. And so you have to hear this. The new thing that God wants to do in our lives through the kingdom of God, there is always an upgrade available if you are willing to displace yourself and your agenda and adjust. So there's two conclusions I want us to get to before we head out. One is more personal and the other one is more communal. Some objects, some things, some systems, some habits, some ways of life are just simply not compatible with the new thing, with the kingdom of God as it is. And while this was more of a season where he was saying the strict religious systems of first century Judaism can't handle this new wine, this new wineskin, right? That, that, that's the realization here. There is plenty of new wineskin situations that we have to deal with in our own hearts and our own lives, right? Any number of things could apply in this way as God is calling us to step out of whatever the old is and into whatever the new is. So stop trying to adjust God and start adjusting yourself to the kingdom of heaven. And so what I want to do is to stop and just ask us to examine our hearts. Just wherever we're at, whatever it is that God surfaced maybe in this last season that was unhealthy or was just for a time, and maybe now it's just like out of season, it's just time to get rid of that old thing. Whatever it is, I want to stop. I want to ask you just to process a few ideas, a few questions. Ask yourself this. If you want to close your eyes and just kind of think about it, meditate, kind of put out some distractions. Are there still things that you hold on to that are unfit for or incompatible with the kingdom of God in general? And do you need to release those things so that your hands are open to embrace the new thing that God is doing in your life? If it's religious adherence to that which looks less like Jesus and more like a denominational agenda, let's get rid of it. If it looks less like Jesus and more like a political ideology, and I'm talking both conservative and progressive, let's let go of that. If we're talking about nationalistic ideology, modern day evangelicalism, cultural identities maybe that are not necessarily bad in themselves, they're just not supposed to be carried into this next season. Yeah. Maybe you've just made that your identity over the identity of Jesus. It's time to shed that old clothes and put on Christ. Let's, let's dig a little bit more. It's a, a sin or maybe an addiction that you're holding. Embrace the grace that God has been giving you. Step out of the dark and into the light. Maybe it needs to be exposed to more light for it to be taken care of. Maybe you've built, listen, this one was specific, I think, to this week. Maybe you built a temporary system around you to get through a difficult season or a moment that was hard, and I feel like God is telling you that was just scaffolding. He never meant for it to be permanent. It was just scaffolding. 
And so the idea is like fold that up, put it away, because now there is a new permanent cemented firm foundation that he wants you to step out on. And we're not always ready to get rid of those. Those become helpful to us. They become friends of ours sometimes. But if you're in that season to say, hey, it's time to put away the scaffolding and trust God and step out into something new, I want to invite you to do that today. Maybe there's a burden or hurt, trauma weighing you down, and it's time to let go of that thing so that you can pick it up, so that God can pick it up on your behalf. Is it bitterness or a point of contention, embracing forgiveness? If it's guilt, be renewed. If it's hardness of heart, be softened. I'm praying this over myself. I don't want to become a heart of stone, God. Whatever it is that you're trying to make work in the new framework of God's kingdom, would you release it and pray with me today. I'm going to ask you to close your eyes. In fact, um, Jonathan, would you go ahead and come up on stage right now? This is, our, this is our response time, and we'll do some of the normal things that we do too. But I just wanted us to give a chance for God to work in us. As, he, as you sit with these ideas, maybe you identify one or more of them that just seems to be coming to mind. And here is our response to that. Adjust me, God. Would you say that with me? Adjust me, God. One more time. Adjust me, God. And so with whatever it is in your mind that you feel like God is telling you to change, just hold on to that, and this is it. God, adjust us. Blow up our rotten old wineskins. Do something new in me today. Download the kingdom into my heart, into my soul, and into my strength Today, and we agree with Ephesians 4, 22, it says you were taught to put away your old former way of life, your old self, corrupt and deluded by its lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your minds, hear this, and to clothe yourselves with the new self, created according to the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. God, we pray that, that scripture back to you, God. Help us to shed the old Help us to put on the new kingdom, God, whatever it is that you have in store for us as people, as persons, God, let us, let us move confidently into the next season. I know we don't usually do this. Just keep, keep your eyes closed, but I want to just um, take a cue from Pastor Ken. If there's anyone who just feels like they're letting go of something old and embracing something new in their life, would you just stand up right now? Yes, Lord. Yes, God. Yeah. Thank you, Jesus. Yeah. We're a church of bold people, so be bold. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Lord. So we continue to keep our eyes closed. Let me pray over everyone who has stood and for maybe those who didn't quite get there yet. Lord, let us shed the old, let us embrace the new God, but for those who have had the courage to identify and ask for that in their lives today and they know it might be hard and they know it might be rough, give them courage, give them boldness, Give them strength. God, the naysayers, the other spies who went back to the promised land, God, give them a heart of Caleb. And when those spies come with all of the reasons why we shouldn't go into this next thing, let those things dissolve 
We don't want to wander around in the desert any more than you would want us to to learn, Jesus. And so I just pray over everyone who is standing, everyone who is even embracing this idea right now, God, I silence the voice of the enemy in this moment, and I ask for you to give them courage, boldness, confidence to step into this new thing. You can go ahead and be seated. Amen. Well, I have one last thing communally for us today, um, and then we'll lift our voices as we sing and ask for God to make new wine of us now. And it's this, if, if you're here and you're holding on to something that is unfit or incompatible with the kingdom of God that is being, what I believe, released in our church, this new thing, that we are doing something new in our ecclesiology, and it needs to be examined as well. So I don't think it's a stretch. That was a new wineskin joke if you didn't catch that stretch. Anyone? Just straight up dad joke, un- unashamedly. There we go. That's what we needed. I don't think it's a stretch for us to take this analogy and to apply it to the fact that as a church that is wanting to move towards a multiracial, multi-ethnic expression, multicultural expression in the context of America in our day, that is new wine, y'all. And I don't expect that there's going to be wineskins everywhere that are ready for that. So there could be opposition. But internally, if we want to get our hearts right, we have to adjust to one another. We have to listen to one another. We have to be able to have grace for one another and the offenses that could, that will inevitably come from that. But I also want to kind of dig in more specifically and say that the onus of that adjustment is those who have been here already. We have a kind of home court advantage And it needs to be recalibrated to center other people's ideas, to center everyone else in this. It's on the onus of the majority culture, and I'll be specific, all right? It's on the onus of the white community for this season right now to operate in the ministry of hospitality and say, I don't want to have all my preferences over having what God is doing new inside of our church. So I'm going to decenter that. I'm going to decenter that in my heart, these white cultural norms that tend to be in the middle of this place so that we can make room for expressions of preaching, for expressions of worship, for expressions of devotion, community, and mission that our brothers and sisters might be bringing into it. That we can coexist as new wine and as it's being fermented, become greater than we were on the other side. It's on us to become new wineskins. Amen. Yeah. And so I told you I was going to do this. As we observe the importance of the preacher and the pastor, Dr. Martin Luther King, I want to recognize the prophet who spoke about a dream. And his words were new wine poured out onto wineskins, into wineskins of a social climate that was not willing, nor was it fit to contain the wine that he was speaking, and so it got spilled out when he was killed. So today we carry that same message, we pick up that wine, we carry that dream into this next generation, and though we're not where we were at the time that Dr. King was alive, we have yet to realize the fullness of the dream that God gave him. It remains an elusive dream in our day and age still, yes? not just in our country, in our churches. And there's still a sacrifice to be made, a price to be paid for this work today that people of color will always end up paying for no matter what. And if the people in the white community don't step into the middle of that willingly, step into that, put some skin in the game, bear that cross, then our brothers and sisters are just going to bear that without, without our help. They're going to do it alone. 
And so if you try to come into this new thing with your old garment, with your rotten old wineskins stretched out, then we might lose the wineskin and the wine both, and it'll be all over the ground once again. So here's my final urge to us today, our collective commitment as a church is that God search our hearts, O oh Lord, help us to see if there's any grievous way in us. That's Psalm 139, adjust us where we need to be adjusted. We believe that your point B, Jesus, is so much better. Your destination, Jesus, is so much better. Your upgrade, God, is so much better than the one we have been operating. And Dr. King saw it. He had the boldness to proclaim it. Do we have the boldness to live it? So the prayer is adjust us, God, because when you created the first family, when you created that first iteration of goodness, every tribe, tongue, and nation was present, and when you reclaim it at the end of time in Revelation, every tribe, tongue, and nation is present, and we want that kingdom instead of our old wineskins. So God, make us new wineskins today. Let me pray for us. God, we are here. We are ready. We are open. We want the vision that you have set before us. We want to see that banquet table realized inside of us. And while it has remained elusive in our churches and in our nation, it is not impossible because you are a miracle-working God. You take mess and you turn it into miracle, and we believe that you are able to do impossible things. So do something impossible with us, Jesus. And we ask for this in the name of Jesus Christ and all God's people said, amen. Would you stand up?